Well, if you have a Bible with you, and, and like I said, if you don't, you can grab one off of the shelf there in the back. We are in sort of the middle, not quite the middle yet, of a series in the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. We're doing that over the summer, uh, spending... Ten weeks in the last eight chapters of Chronicles in a series we're calling Restoration. Uh, really enjoying my time and just studying this book and preparing to preach and teach it. And also not just studying, but hopefully learning to apply it to myself that we might do that together as a body as well. So Second Chronicles is where we're going to be. Here's what we've seen so far. We started in chapter 29. And in chapter 29 we were introduced to this new king. His name was Hezekiah. King Hezekiah had a bad dad who didn't rule well, who didn't lead God's people to God. They had turned away. But Hezekiah got started right away with figuring out how he could restore worship of God to God's people. So he prepares the way for that to happen in chapter 29, and then he gets to chapter 30, and an invitation goes out. The invitation says, people, would you return to the Lord? An invitation to return to the Lord, and many respond to that invitation and return to the Lord, and they get together. A huge group of people. It was a large group, and it was a diverse group. All sorts of different people with all sorts of different life experiences, all sorts of different backgrounds, people who hadn't been together before, are gathering together for two primary purposes. That is to worship God through sacrifice and through a feast. And their worship is not kind of like this rote, well, this is just what we do. It was the kind of worship that, really um, could be characterized, you could look at the end of verse 30, as joyful, a time of great gladness is what we see over and over again. So that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 30. Large group of diverse people gathering together to worship God with great joy and gladness. And so now we're going to be this morning in Second Chronicles 31. The question is, where do we go from here? Some great reforms and restoration has taken place. The temple is kind of a good place to be again, a place to worship. God's people have come. All sorts of people have gathered together. It was so good for week one that they extended it into two weeks, right? So these people are enjoying being together, worshiping God. And then what? What comes next? I mean, do they get to hang out and kind of have this spiritual high experience? forever or is there something that comes after that i spent a little over seven years as a youth pastor and that meant that a lot of my time was spent uh going to i went to a middle school retreat a high school retreat every winter a couple of other events during the fall and winter i went to a a week of middle school camp every year a week of high school camp every year a mission trip almost every year and so all these different experiences where these students would kind of get on fire and get all excited had this great experience of a large group coming together to worship God with gladness and great joy. But then we had to go home. And every time the kids were like, I don't want it to be the same when I go home. I want to keep that fire burning when I go home, right? And, and one thing that I would often remind them is, you know what? I really love Thanksgiving dinner. I think it's great. But I don't eat Thanksgiving dinner every day of the year. That, that's a feast that I get to enjoy every once in a while. But you know what I do every day of the year? I keep eating food. It might not be Thanksgiving dinner. It might not be a feast, but I'm going to discipline myself to keep eating food because I know that I need that. So so how are God's people now after this two-week experience, just a spiritual high, great gladness and joy in worshiping God, how do they come out of that? What comes next? When joyful worship is restored, then what comes? So that's what we're going to look at today. 
Does this restoration of joyful worship actually change their lives and the lives of others? I mean, is there the result of, is there because of joyful worship being restored amongst God's people, is there then going to result some kind of change in life? What about us? Does the time that we spend together each week on a Sunday morning worshiping God as a large and semi-large and and diverse group of people, does that change us? Or do we just kind of walk away and say, all right, see you again next week. Don't we want this time that we spend together to change us in some way? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So you'll see that there's three points in your bulletin. There's a sermon outline and an application guide. I encourage you to follow along there. But we're going to begin by just reading God's Word. I'm going to say some things that I've come put up with, or put up with, you got to put up with it. Uh, I came up with it as a result of just praying and studying God's Word. And, and, I, and I hope that what I say is true, but I know for sure that these words that we're going to read in 2 Chronicles 31 are true, because this is God's Word. And so, just to kind of separate that and help that stand out, if you could, please stand as we read God's Word together. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 31 in the book of 2 Chronicles. It says this, Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord, and to give thanks and praise. Now the contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as it's written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah, who lived in the cities of Judah, also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and they laid them in heaps. And in the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finished them in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, Well, since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and we've had enough and have had plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord. And they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated dedicated things. The chief officer in charge of them was Conaniah the Levite, with Shemiah his brother as second. While Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahath, Azahel, Jeremoth, Jozebad, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahath and Benaiah were overseers assisting Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, by the appointment of Hezekiah the king and Azariah the chief officer of the house of God. And Kor, the son of Imna the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the free will offerings to God, to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. Eden, Miniamin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, Shechaniah were faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priests to distribute the portions to their brothers, old and young alike, by division. 
except those enrolled by genealogy. Males from three years old and upward, all who entered the house of the Lord as the duty of each day required, for their service according to their offices by their divisions. Now the enrollment of the priests was according to their fathers' houses, that of the Levites from twenty years old and upward was according to their officers, offices by their divisions. They were enrolled with all their little children and their wives, their sons and their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. And for the sons of Aaron, the priests who were in the fields of common land belonging to their cities, there were men in the several cities who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to everyone among whom the Levites who was enrolled. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. He can be seated. Well, if you uh, studied Hebrew, you would know that I totally just destroyed all those names. Uh, but might, probably you didn't, so you didn't even know it. Um, uh, if I did it again, I'd read them totally differently. Um, but Second Chronicles 31, we're going to, because a lot of that last section had a lot to do with just lists of names, we're going to spend most of our time in the first section of this chapter and then a little bit at the end as well. You can, again, like I said, follow along in those sermon notes and, and application guide can outline inside your bulletin. First point is this, joyful worship. Remember, we're going to talk about the fact that this joyful worship they'd experienced was supposed to lead to something. Joyful worship, first thing we see it lead to is this. Joyful worship leads to idol destruction. Did you see that in verse 1? Did you hear as I read that? I love this. So remember, they had worship for one week. That's what they were supposed to do. They were having so much fun. They said, let's go week number two. So they went two weeks. And now the two weeks are up. And they don't just say, goodbye, see you next year. But they realize there's some business they need to take care of. Part of the result of their joyful worship was realizing that there was some stuff in their lives that wasn't right. Have you ever had that? Where you come together and you worship God, you you get a picture again of His glory and His splendor, and then you look at your own life and you realize not everything is right. I need to deal with that. That's what was happening with these people here in verse 1. Now when all this was finished, it says, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars, and cut down the ashram, and broke down the high places, and the altars throughout all Judah, and Benjamin, and in Ephraim, and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Okay, They were serious about this. Before they even got to go home, they recognized, listen, we've got some sin in our life that we need to deal with, and it's not okay. It's not okay for us to have this great experience of worshiping God, but then also keeping these these sinful temptations that we used to go worship at, just sitting around. We can't do that. And so they go out. I don't know what kind of tools they had, but it probably would be fun. Kids, you probably would have really enjoyed this. They just went out with, with tools and just started smashing stuff, right? Boys especially, right? They got to just go out and find all these high places and these altars where they had worshiped. They had, they had gone to sin, and they, they went to those places. They just started knocking them over, taking them and throwing them in the river. Okay? They didn't have like the Department of National Re- Natural Resources come and get after them, so they could do whatever they want. I'm going to throw this one in the brook, and they threw it in the brook. Like We don't want this anymore, right? They dealt with their sin right away, and it was far-reaching. You notice all the places it happened. It wasn't just in a little area. They went all over the place and did this, and it was complete. They didn't leave a few just in case they wanted to go back. It says, until they had destroyed them all. 
And then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. Kind of cool. I like that. I like that. Remember, remember, Chronicles was originally written about 300 years after the time of these events here. And so the original audience, these disillusioned people who had been living in exile now came back. They need to be reminded because they had been living with these people who were pagans. And they had probably engaged in some of their pagan practices. And they needed to hear this message. Remember that time when God's people came to worship God, but they said no more to all the stuff that they used to do. We're done with that. They needed that reminder. And so the author of Second Chronicles gives that to them. But what about us? How does this first point apply to us? Application, okay? What can we learn about how to deal with our sin? From Second Chronicles chapter 31, verse 1. First, it's this. I think we need to learn to acknowledge our sin. I mean, it's easy. It would have been easy for them to gather together with God's people, have a great two weeks. Man, we love being together, worshiping God as this group of people, spiritual high kind of time. Let's do it. They love that. And then they could have just gone home. But they acknowledged their sin. And we need to acknowledge our sin. Maybe, maybe it's something in your life like, well, I've been dealing with this for so long. It's just part of who I am. I don't even know if I can change anymore. Or maybe for you, it's a sin issue in your life that's become a habit or an addiction. And you've tried over and over again to kind of kick it on your own. But you always keep going back to it. Right? Or maybe it's something that's so secret, so shameful, that you don't even want anybody else to know. So you've got sin stuff going on in your life. That's just for you, and you don't want anybody else to know or help you with it. First step, if we're going to deal with our sin, is we need to acknowledge our sin. These people acknowledge, hey, you know what? Before we go home, after this, we got, our, we got all those high places, those places we used to worship, false gods. We need to do something about that. So step number two is this. Destroy it. Don't manage it. They didn't, they didn't like set a guard to stand there and like, hey, make sure that people don't come and worship you. are like, no, we're going to break that thing down. We're not messing with sin. We're not going to try and manage sin. And we try to do that, don't we? We try to manage sin in our life. Like we try and place restrictions on ourselves in some way. Try to manage our sin rather than destroying it. I remember one time, this is, you know, uh, when I was on one of those winter retreats with students. Um, we went to this winter retreat. And I remember just being convicted about something. I don't remember anything that the guy said, but, but the Holy Spirit just brought about conviction in my life that I had been just wasting some time, um, that, that I had this idol of sorts that just needed to be destroyed. Uh, what it was in my life at that point, it was Kirsten and I were married and we didn't have any children at that point. But oftentimes after just kind of a, uh, a long day of pastoral ministry, it would get to be late at night. I could have spent time just refreshing myself with God's Word or just spending time with Kirsten. But I had uh, Madden football, um, and, uh, and so that's what I went to. Uh, me and John Madden spent some time playing a video game together. Um, and, and I would go to that. And, and then like, it got to be, and then sometimes it would be like, hey, Kirsten, you can just go to bed. I'm just going to finish this game or the next game or whatever. And I just kept it. And, like, and so I'm sitting at this winter retreat, joyfully worshiping God with all of these students that I was pastoring. And I thought, you know what? What a stupid waste of time. I don't need that anymore. So when I went home, I didn't just like, well, I'm going to put a restriction on myself and say, like, I just went home and I put it in the trash can where it went out to the street and the, 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 the garbage truck just smashed it. That was good for me, right? I, I didn't want to manage that anymore. I just didn't want to do it anymore. How stupid. And so just like, well, that was kind of an idol. Weird, dumb, yes, but an idol all the same. And so I'm going to get rid of it. Destroy it. We need to not manage sin, but destroy it. Also, we need to destroy it together. We need some help. 
Sin is powerful. Anybody that's ever tried to battle it would know that that's the case. And we need help in destroying our idols. I love that these people, they went out and they did this together. It wasn't like, hey, when I get home, I think I might deal with this sometime on my own. No, they all went together and they went and broke down some high places and started throwing stuff away. They went out together. We need to become the kind of church where we are comfortable enough with each other, and maybe not with everybody, but at least with a small group of people to get together and say, you know what? I kind of put on this thing for everybody, but I'm not going to put on this thing for you. My life is a mess. I'm broken. I've got, I've got hurt. I've got pain. And I've got sin that needs to be dealt with. Will you help me? If we keep our wounds covered up, there's no hope that, that those things are going to get healed. We need to expose our wounds to some other people who can come and help us apply the healing balm of the gospel to the hard, sinful, ugly, weak, broken places in our lives. Need to become that kind of church that does this together. And then, fourth point, deal with your sin today. Do it now. I love it how these people, like, they didn't go home first and say, well, I think I'm going to take care of that. How many times do we do that? We feel convicted in some way about something in our life by the Holy Spirit, and we kind of have this inside uh, mental sort of, yeah, I think I'm going to take care of that. I will. I'm going to. I'm going to this time. I'm going to take care of that when I get home. Maybe what you need to do today, though, Maybe there's something in your life that you just continue to battle over and over again. Maybe even before you leave today, you just need to find somebody that you know and trust. And you just say to them, hey, you know what? We're going to talk sometime this week. That's all you need to say. Um, then you'll get something set up. But if, if you don't do it now, if you kind of just say, well, I think I will. I'll just do that. I'll call, I'll call them maybe on Monday. Or maybe late. life will just happen. We get busy. And we don't think of things that we need to. So, so maybe you just need to deal with it now like these people did before they went home. So one result of a restoration of joyful worship amongst God's people is that they don't want to live with idols anymore. They want to deal with their sin. They want to take care of it. They don't want to manage it. They want to, they want to go out and destroy it. That's what they did here in verse 1. Verses 2 through 10, we see another result of joyful worship. That joyful worship leads to generous giving. Did you notice that in verse 2? There were some priests and Levites who, when the temple was kind of in ruins a bit and, and nobody really cared about worshiping God, I don't know what the priests and Levites were doing, but they weren't being priests and Levites. But now they got their jobs back because now people want to worship God. They didn't just want to worship God for two weeks. They want to keep doing it. And so the priests and the Levites, they're not unemployed anymore. They got their jobs back. And so Hezekiah, verse 2, appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites. He gets them all separated. He says, go do your jobs. Let's take care of this. God's people, did you see what just happened during these two weeks? God's people love worshiping God. Let's not make this a once every year kind of thing. Let's make this a daily, weekly thing. We want to worship God. So he gets priests and Levites set up to do that work to enable people to worship God. But that's going to take some money. Okay, That's going to take some stuff. So we see here, verse 3 says this, The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offering. So we see King Hezekiah saying, Listen, if people are going to worship God by making sacrifices, then I'm going to take out of my own wealth as king, I'm going to take out of my own wealth and I'm going to contribute so that we have enough of what it takes for sacrifices to be made. Okay, So, so King Hezekiah is giving himself. And then verse 4, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. Everybody else, he says, Listen, you need to give. You need to give a portion of what God gives you so that the priests and the Levites can do their job, so that we can together worship God. Okay, 
So that's his message to everybody. And then, how do they respond? Look at verses 5 and 6. Love this. Look at verses 5 and 6. As soon as the command was spread abroad. So the command goes out. Hey, listen, you need to be giving people. God's given you so much. Don't you want to keep worshiping Him? One of the things that's required for worshiping Him, not like He needs your money, but for some of the things that we need to do, we need some money. And therefore, the command goes out. You need to start giving. And so, verse 5, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance. You're going to see that two times. They gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. Okay, what's a first fruit? When it says they gave their first fruits, that means they didn't get all of their yield in, sort through all the good stuff, keep all the good stuff for themselves, and then give a little bit of what was left over, the bad stuff, away. They gave of their first fruits. Whatever came in first, not even knowing how much more would come in, not even knowing what the quality would be of all the rest, they gave of their first fruits of all those different things. And then they brought in abundantly. That's the second time we've seen that. So they're being very generous. They're bringing in abundantly. It's not like they're just kind of, what can I give so I can keep doing whatever I want to do and just kind of have minimal sacrifice on my part? No, they're bringing in abundance, the tithe of everything. We're going to see tithe show up. It shows up again in verse 6. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. What's a tithe? Tithe is really simply 10%. These people had looked at all that they had, and, and from what all that they had, they looked at what do we have and what's 10% of that, and we're just giving that um, in addition to some other stuff that they were giving as well. So they were giving at least a 10% gift, and they gave it consistently. It happened from the third through the seventh month, it says in verse 7. Did you see that? It says in verse 7, in the third month they began to pile up the heaps and they finished them in the seventh month. Their kind of main times of harvest began in what would be mid-May through June uh, and what would be in our calendar September through October. And during those months is where they were bringing in, harvesting all of the things that they had planted or grown or whatever. And so during that whole time, they were just consistent in bringing it in. They kept bringing it in and bringing it in. And the result was in verse 8, when Hezekiah and the princes came and they saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people. Skip ahead to verse 10. I love this. Hezekiah is like, what's going on here? This pile's really, really big. In verse 10, Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, answered him, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough and have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. Saying, Did you notice that? The Lord has blessed his people. Okay, So God has provided for his people in such a way that as they're just faithful and generous and consistent in their giving, they're not looking at, well, did you give me a good sales pitch? And if you give me a good sales pitch, I might bring you something. He wasn't given a sales pitch. The command just went out, hey, let's keep worshiping God and it's going to require some money. So they started giving 10% plus so that this could happen. And as they did that, there was a surplus. There was a little heap that was forming, a big heap. So Hezekiah was like, what's the deal with the heap? He's like, I don't know. They just keep bringing it. And we're fo- and then so then Hezekiah, what he does in the following verses, is he finds ways for that heap to be used. Like, there's no shortage of opportunities. There's no shortage of ways in which God's people can be blessed and, and other people can come to know God, that his name could be made great. As the people can continue to give, we're going to find ways to make this work. So that's what happens in the remaining verses. When I read all of those names, that's what all those names were about. But before we get to that last section, 
kind of the, the quick little ending of it, I just want to do some application here. Maybe you could even do some of it in your mind on your own. And I hesitate always, when I'm talking about giving in the Old Testament, I hesitate to make an immediate jump to our financial situation and our giving today because there are some major differences. And I'll hit on those in just a moment. But I do think that as we see in Second Chronicles 31, what's happening is God's people are giving generously so that God's work can be done in their day. Right? That's what's happening. And that can apply to us. That my hope is that we would be, as God's people, giving generously so that God's work can be done in our day. Okay? So very basically, you know, again, there's going to be some differences. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But let me just tell you a really brief little snippet of the financial situation currently at Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. Okay? So Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church, if you come, we don't talk about money a lot here. We don't, we don't really kind of give a lot of reports. We do that at business meetings and not many people show up. So, so most of you uh, might not know too much about what's the financial situation of our church. How are we doing? It's a good question. Here's the answer. God has provided for our church. Praise God. God has provided. And you have been generous in your weekly giving. So thank you for that. We just, uh, we just take an offering uh, every week, and you have been very generous in that. Our leaders also have been responsible. So thank you, leaders, uh, for, for helping us to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. One time, there's a, there's a time, there were times I've heard in the history of the church in which the church was scrambling always to figure out which bills to pay and which bills not to pay. That's not the case anymore. For the last number of months, the case for the church has been there has been enough money to pay all of our bills and even some money that's building up. We would have probably not the kind of heap that they have, but we would have a small little heap. Um, okay, And so we are right now, we have a surplus. Now, I want to talk, I mentioned that I talked to you before I kind of talk about application of that. I want to talk to you about a couple of differences between the giving here in Second Chronicles 31 and, and our giving today, a number of years later. Okay couple of major differences are this. Remember, they were giving for two main purposes. They were giving so that sacrifices could be made. That's what King Hezekiah's gifts were going to, so that they would have animals to burn for sacrifices, right? And then they were also giving so that the priests and the Levites could do their work. So application for today, a couple of differences are we do not have to give so that sacrifices can be made. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the one sacrifice that was sufficient so that no sacrifices are needed anymore. So we don't give so that sacrifices can be made. We give instead because the greatest sacrifice has already been made. And it has come to us as a free gift. The benefits of Jesus' sacrifice are a free gift to us. And so our giving is in response to the sacrifice that's been made. We don't give so that a sacrifice can be made. Get it? So there's a major difference between Second Chronicles 31 and today. The other, other reason that they gave is to support the work of the priests and the Levites. I'm not your priest, okay? I'm not, not your priest. I don't have the collar. I'm not, I'm not in any way your priest. I am your pastor. And so one of the benefits um, for me and for my family and hopefully for the church as well is that part of what your giving does as you give on a Sunday morning is that the church is budgeted to pay me um, so that I can dedicate myself full time to being your pastor. So thankful for your generous giving that allows, even in this season of our life, it allows Kirsten to work full time doing some really good work without any financial compensation, right? And so, so I'm the only income in our family, and I'm so grateful for your generosity that allows and benefits my family very personally. But I'm not your priest, right? Um, and, and all of us 
who put our faith and trust in Christ become a part of the priesthood of all believers. So the money that you give doesn't just come to me so I can do some work. That's where part of it goes. But, but also it goes so that God's work can be done here and around the world. And that's being done in so many ways. And I'm so thankful for that. So there's some differences. In Hezekiah's day, giving was an act of worship that practically provided food and animals for sacrifice as well as providing for the priests and Levites to make a living. Today, in our day, giving is an act of worship that practically provides financial support for staff and facilities and for local and global ministry motivated by Jesus' sacrifice. That's the difference. Now, a little bit more application about our giving today then with those differences in mind. Our motivation for giving is Christ's work for us. I already mentioned that. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is trying to encourage the church to be generous and to excel in the grace of giving. And he uses as the grounds and the motivation for our giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's what Jesus has already done. He says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So we're motivated in our giving not by some command that has come out that we must start to give, but we are motivated because of Jesus' gift, that he has given himself, that he has sacrificed himself, that we might become rich. So how do we do this? What can we say? On this side of the cross and resurrection, on this side of kind of putting together what happened in Second Chronicles with, with that, and then our current financial situation in the church, what do we do? application. Just want to get really practical. I hope that we are a church that continues to give generously. The standard for God's people before Christ was that they would give at least 10% and then give above that. We've talked about this before. We don't have a command. We do not have a command in the New Testament to tithe 10% to your local church. That command does not exist. However, what we have talked about is, is is there any way in which we could logically reason that, well, the Old Testament standard was to give 10% plus, that now in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of the fact that he gave up all of his riches and became poor so that for our sake, so that we might have life, in light of what he has done, should we just now say, well, now I'm free to give less than that? And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And so it's, it's, a, it's a thing that you're going to have to decide personally. Everybody does it differently. There, I know there's no shortage of opportunities to give. There's no shortage of opportunities to spend. It always feels like the money that we have is limited, like we don't really ever have enough. But are you willing to discipline yourself, make some kind of commitment that God's work might be done locally and globally as you give generously? Just, just what what we have done. I don't tell. I tell you this just just as an example um, for for what we're striving for as a couple. What we're trying to do is we we want to always increase. We don't want to kind of get to a spot where we say, okay, now we're giving enough. That's good. We want to just continually increase the amount that we're giving. That's what it means to be generous. That it's not like, well, I'm just gonna. This is what I do, and I can feel good about that. And now I'm done. Like we just we want to stretch ourselves. So so our our, our practice is to give ten percent plus to the church and then and then to figure out also on top of that which missionaries and church planters and things like that we're going to support. That requires discipline and planning, but it's something that we've really enjoyed doing uh, as a family. I don't know what your family or your individual practice is, but would you consider in light of what Christ has done for us and in light of the work that still needs to be done, that more and more people would come to know Jesus and that we would make him known all throughout the world, generous giving might be what God is calling you to. We also see them giving consistently here. 
I don't know, maybe, maybe you need to do that. But one of the things that happened because they were giving consistently is there was this surplus. So you could hear maybe that, hey, now the church has a little bit more money um, than, than they actually need to pay all the bills. So I'm going to go, therefore, just kind of like cut back on giving. That could be one of the responses that you have. But I love that the people here in Second Chronicles 31, they just kept giving and the heap just kept getting larger. And what that enabled Hezekiah and the people to do is that the leaders like Hezekiah, he could make sure that things that weren't happening could start to happen. That's what happens in verses 11 and following. Things that weren't happening before could now happen because there was some money to work with. There, Listen, church, there's a lot of things that we could do as a church that we're not doing right now. That's part of the work of the leaders as we, we discern and pray. Would you pray for us as we work through that? We don't make any decisions, by the way, without without bringing before the church. If we've got a change in the budget or whatever, we bring that before the whole church, and the whole church gets to decide on that. But we have decisions to make all the time. There's so many things that the church could do in response to the generous giving of people. We, uh, we talk about missions often. We are giving right now about 18% of our church budget to global missions. Could we give more? You bet we could. Mary Beth and Bio are missions partners in Nigeria doing a great work of just kind of holistic gospel ministry in that place. They need to build a school. That costs them $80,000. We'd love to give them a bunch of money. But that requires generous giving of God's people so that we could do that. We've long talked about some additional gatherings place place in this church, a welcoming entry, maybe a need for some extra restrooms and those kind of things. But that would also take some money, right? We, we've talked about... Uh, man, could we could we reach more people and make more disciples who would make more disciples if we added another pastoral staff person? You bet we could, but you know what? That would take some more money. All sorts of different things that could be done. We're going to have opportunities coming at us really soon and hopefully even more in the future to support more missionaries who are going out to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We'd love to support more of them very, very generously, but again, that requires money. But our desire, because we want to see God's kingdom expand, because we want to see more and more people come to know Christ, is that we would be a church that gives generously and consistently. And so, final point, like I said, is going to be really quick. We're not going to read over verses 11 to 19. Verses 11 to 19 just talk about the fact that because now the temple has been restored, God's people are fired up, they want to worship God. Then Hezekiah is just saying, well, let's make this happen. You guys have been generous in your giving. We can make sure that there are places to worship set up all throughout the region. Let's make this happen. And so it does. And the application for us, I'm so grateful that we have a church full of servants. Did you notice all these names? I mean, it's kind of hard to read the names and we kind of laugh. And maybe this is the part of your Bible reading that you skip over. It's just like, what's, what's the good of all those names? But those are real people who I don't know what they were doing before, but from this point on, this was their job. They were going to give their lives to, to looking over the free will offering at the East Gate. That was this guy's job from now on. He's going to do this. He's going to do whatever it takes to serve so that God might be worshipped amongst his people. We have a church full of servants. I love this church. We've got a lot of people who are serving the church in a lot of ways, and a lot of them doing it behind the scenes. And a lot of that's possible because God has provided for us and you have given generously. So we have a building to take care of. Lately, because of some of the giving, we've been able to do some stuff. We've gotten kind of behind on some building maintenance and improvement kind of things. So maybe you've noticed just little things that have been happening. Um, Walls have been painted. Coat racks have been installed. Technology has been updated. There's a committee working together to talk about a new sound system, which is in the budget for this year that we're working on. 
Maybe you noticed the parking lot uh, was repaired and resurfaced when you came in this morning. It'll be striped, by the way, on Monday. So if you're really confused, like, I don't know how to do it without lines, they'll be there tomorrow. It's fine. But a lot of work has been done because of the generous giving of God's people. But there's so much more that could be done. All those things are just physical things. They're not even mentioning all of the ways in which children and youth and adults have been discipled. God is at work in this church in many ways, and we're so grateful for God's work in it, and we want it to continue. The final two verses are just a really quick summary so far of the life of Hezekiah. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. And wouldn't you love this to be the assessment of your life? That at the end of your life, would they, they would say this about you? Here's what it says. And he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. That'd be pretty cool. Fill in, your, fill in the blank with your name that you get to the end of your life, whenever that might be. And they would say, listen, this is one who did what was good and right and faithful in the eyes of the Lord. That's the summary of Hezekiah's life up to this point. We're going to get more of his life in the coming weeks. But as we transition to communion this morning, we need to remember that the fuel for all of this, all of this that's happening here, this joyful worship that took place amongst God's people, the idle destruction that followed it, the generous giving that followed that, the willing service that followed that, all of those things for us today are fueled by Jesus. That that we recognize that Jesus is deserving of our joyful worship, don't we? That we as a church recognize that Jesus has crushed the power of sin. He has set us free from our bondage to sin and idolatry. That Jesus motivates our giving by His giving. That Jesus motivates our serving because He is one who came to serve. And that Jesus alone has been totally faithful. We're going to find out about Hezekiah. It says here that he did what was good and right and faithful. He's not always going to be faithful. We'll see that in a couple weeks. But Jesus has always been and will always be faithful. He alone has led a perfect life. And his sacrifice, because of his perfect life, is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And that's what we're going to remember as we go and and have communion together this morning. So if the elders would come forward as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you uh, be at work? I thank you that you are at work. We don't even have to... We don't even have to doubt that. We see you at work in so many ways. We, again, want to see you at work, certainly through special events like VBS in the next week. But we see you at work day in and day out in the life of your people. Maybe it's not this spiritual high experience at all times, but we see glimpses now and then of your continued work amongst your people for the sake of your name. We desire and we know you desire that people from every tongue and tribe and nation would come and fall before your throne in worship. And so, God, would you motivate us to to deal with our sin, maybe even today, if that needs to be done, so that your name might be glorified? Would you motivate us to give generously so that your name might be glorified? And would you motivate us by your faithfulness to be faithful and to serve so that your name might be known among the nations? God, that's our desire. And I pray now that as we move into a time of communion, that you would ready our hearts and our minds to once again take the bread and the cup, which remind us of your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.